This is one of the most exciting stories of the Bible. I think we all can agree on that. This is what you might call the climax of Act 1 of the book of Exodus. Act 1, or if you want to use a 2021 example, the end of Season 1, okay? We're coming to the finale here. It's all going to build up, and then we're going to continue. We're only about a third of the way through this thing, and there's more to come. But for now, this is, this is very much the turning point, the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the monumental moment of salvation in the Old Testament, you read throughout the Bible, what does the Lord keep telling the children of Israel? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And very frequently they praise the Lord in the Old Testament with language that is descriptive of what he did in Exodus chapter 14. The Psalms are replete with this imagery where it talks of God being the master of the seas and how God lays bare the foundations of the earth with a blast of his nostrils. That's all referring back to Exodus 14 and the, the parting of the Red Sea. And even in the New Testament, which of course the, the book of Exodus was prefiguring what was going to happen through Jesus Christ, the New Testament loves to use this story as a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us and a prefiguring and even a prophecy of what he would do. Baptism is very frequently described as passing through the waters, just as the children of Israel passed through the waters. I think you all can see that. It's a picture of death and rebirth. It's a picture of coming out of slavery and into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. You've heard that preached before. I'm sure you have as a picture of your salvation. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That is, of course, that pillar of cloud. And all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You notice that repetition of the word spiritual. Paul is not trying to say that the Old Testament story was just a metaphor, and you don't actually have to believe it. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's an analogy, you, right? you got to follow that. This was a real event, but it corresponds to our salvation as Christians and our daily sanctification as New Testament believers. The New Testament not only invites, it encourages us to draw out these comparisons. And we never want to be such sticklers for context that we cannot allow the appropriate use of application and, and even typology in our Bible study. What do we learn from this passage that affects our day-to-day -day life? In our fight against sin and in our daily struggles in the world, you will face opposition. Not just bad times. Not just hard things. Opposition. And that makes us afraid. I don't really need to stretch too far these days to reach for an example of that. But the lesson we learn from this passage is that the Lord fights for us. And while if you're only looking at things through a material lens, it might seem like bad advice, I'm going to tell you, the best thing you can do is to wait upon the Lord. In fact, Moses is going to say, stand still. And we do not like that kind of advice. But y'all, miracles only make sense from a heavenly perspective. And so my desire tonight is to stoke and encourage and build up that heavenly perspective in you tonight. To invite God into your thinking and the way you evaluate your life. This is a very familiar story. I'm hoping I can shed a little extra light on it tonight. But at the very least, just remind you of how good our God is. So we'll begin by reading these first four verses 
and uh, we'll get some background information. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. All right. Last time we saw them booted out of Egypt. The Lord had, had brought the tenth plague upon the people. Pharaoh finally let them go, and they left. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory, as it's traditionally called, of the Lord was leading them out. And it said in chapter 13 that they had left not by the way of the Philistines, which means not along the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been the fastest way to the promised land, but the Lord said, I'm not going to expose them to battle so soon. They're not going to scare them. So they're not going that way. It says they went by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Give us two markers, Sukkoth and Etham. It says on the edge of the wilderness. And now it says that they are to turn back. This is the Hebrew word shuv. It also is used to, or translated, repent or turn around, shuv, to turn back, and make camp near Pihahiroth, Migdol, and Baal Zephon. You all know where that is, right? These are familiar places for you. This is, you know, funny sometimes because the people reading this knew where that was, and we're like, I have no idea what that is. And I will tell you, the only clue we have to those three locations is the phrase, by the sea. That's the only phrase we have, is that they are by the sea somewhere. And this is what we're going to talk about now. I told you we'd get into it some this week. Knowing where the Red Sea was parted is the question. Where did they go? Where did the Red Sea part? And by extension, we'll hit this more next time. Where is Mount Sinai? These are our important questions. They're biblical questions. I think they're very interesting questions. But I want to make very clear, these are secondary issues. There are some that every issue of geography in the Bible is a matter of like salvation, you know, <laughs> figuring out where to, that, that is not the case. None of this affects the interpretation of this passage. If you're in the IBS class, you know what I'm talking about. The interpretation class, what does this mean is, is very clear. But I think it's a lot of fun and it helps shed light on the Bible and can even affect how we interpret later prophecies based on how you understand this. So let's take a little detour before we get into the, the story itself and look at this. First, we got to start by looking at the phrase Red Sea. We've all seen the Ten Commandments. We know what the Red Sea looked like, right? This is the Hebrew word, your words actually, Yam Suf. The word Yam means sea. It's very easy. And the word Suf is the Hebrew word that means reeds. It is a borrowed Egyptian word that means like a papyrus reed. In chapter 2, verse 3, when it says that Moses was taken in the basket and placed among the reeds, that is the same word. He was placed among the suf. So, literally, you have here, sea of reeds. Now, why in the world would you translate that Red Sea? Because it's not like you dropped an E. This isn't English we're talking about here. Well, you get Red Sea from the Septuagint, the LXX. Those are Roman numerals that stand for 70 the Septuagint, which was the official Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, 
that is quoted most often in your New Testament. So the Septuagint, when they came to the phrase Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds, they translated it Eruthron Thalassan. Y'all know what that is, right? Y'all know, know what that is. Eruthron Thalassan. Now, what this has led many to conclude here is that when we see Sea of Reeds, what it's talking about is where the children of Israel lived was in the area called the Nile Delta. The Nile is a river that runs north. As it comes to the Mediterranean Sea, it fans out in a, in a sort of triangle shape, and the water disperses as it gets closer to the sea. It makes this area very marshy, very swampy. These reeds grow up in the ground. The, the water runs through it, and it can be deeper or more shallower depending on the time and depending where you are. And they say this is what it's talking about. It's talking about the children of Israel leaving this part of Egypt. And as they come to this sea of reeds, it's basically they're trying to cross the bayou with three million people. All right? So you've got to understand this is equally impassable. You're not getting millions of people through that if that's what's going on. However, I don't know, know if that's the best way to understand this. Some of y'all looking real nervous. Just take it easy, all right? The Greek there, Eruthron Thalassan. We call the Red Sea the big body of water down in the bottom. That's what we call the Red Sea. And then you have two gulfs that are going up around what is now called the Sinai Peninsula. The one that is to the west is called the Gulf of Suez. Maybe you've heard the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is a canal that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Gulf of Suez. And the one on the eastern side, your right hand, is the Gulf of Aqaba. That's A-Q-A-B-A, -A -A, the Gulf of Aqaba. And we look at that, and we're very precise and very scientific, and we have satellite imagery so we can see exactly what's going on there. So in our maps, we have Red Sea, Gulf of Suez, Gulf of Aqaba. At this stage of the game, the Greeks understood the Eruthron Thalassan to refer to that entire body of water and everything that was south of that, including the Indian Ocean. This was their Red Sea, the Eruthros. It means red. So the Red Sea for the Greeks was all that water that was south of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's important for us to know the literal Hebrew is Sea of Reeds. But the translation Red Sea is not a false or faulty translation. It is translating it according to the culture of the day that didn't know this as the Sea of Reeds. They knew this as the Red Sea. And this expands the possibility of where they crossed. Do you understand what, where, where the, the trouble is coming here? Because this would not just have included the Red Sea proper. It would not just have included the gulfs of Aqaba and Suez. It also would have included most of what we is, is sometimes called the Sea of Reeds, that marshy area near the delta in the north. It would have included that too. So this really makes it a, a wide open question of where did they cross the Red Sea? Because it's all the Red Sea. You've got to be clear about this. Now there are, there are two main options here that are really discussed. There are others, but I'm only going to give you the ones that I feel are, are at least with some with some seriousness, biblically valid. Because some people want to say they didn't and it was all made up, and others say it makes no sense why they wouldn't go along the Mediterranean Sea, so let's just say they did. <laughs> the Bible says they didn't. you got two main options here. Number one is that they crossed over the Gulf of Suez, which is, of course, the western antenna of the Red Sea, you can see there. And depending on who you ask, some people would say, well, Sea of Reeds, therefore they would have crossed over in one of those marshy, bayou, swamp kind of areas. Others that are more traditional would say it would have been more to the north, and it actually would have been a sea, as we understand it today, a large body of water. The other option is 
the eastern option, the Gulf of Aqaba. And that that would be at some point, and people argue for the south or the north, and just about everybody who's out there has their own opinion. But th those are the two main options, somewhere the north of the Suez or across the Akaba. And I will say the majority opinion across all of Christendom is the Suez option, the northern option through the reeds. However, as I said, I don't much care for that going through the bayou option. Not because I think it's unbiblical, and let's be very clear, not because I like the version of the movie that has the big water better, because all I want to do is what the Bible says, not what would make good TV, all right? So we're just going to leave that aside for a minute. But let's look at how the Bible describes the parting of the Red Sea and how the poetry in Psalms and elsewhere describes it. It talks about the depths. It says the depths overcame them. It talks about great walls of water we're going to read on the sides of them. And when they camp beside it, it's called the sea. They camped by the yam, the sea. And it seems, at least to me, unlikely that you're sitting next to, yeah, it makes sense to call this the sea of reeds, but to just call it the sea when it's more or less a swamp seems like an odd, odd choice to me. It seems to indicate deeper water than perhaps waist deep, perhaps neck deep, and, and perhaps inconsistent depth going through it. And also, as we've seen, for the people at this time, when it was translated Red Sea, it included all of that water. So I, I think it's, it's more likely that we're talking about either a, a deeper part of the Suez or a deeper part of the Akaba. So let's ask ourselves this question now. How far have they gone at this point? Are they still in Egypt or have they left Egypt? Because if you hold to the, the Western option, the, the Suez option, you're probably believing that they haven't really left Egypt. They've left their home. They left Goshen. And then the Lord tells them to come back, and, and they're hanging out on that side of, of the, the sea, the Gulf of Suez. In 14, verse 3, we've already read this, that Pharaoh sees them and says, they are wandering in the land. Now, of course, the land can just be they're wandering in the desert. They're lost. But it could be that the land is a reference to this land, as in the land of Egypt. But then we're going to see in verse 5 that Pharaoh is going to see that the people had fled, that they had left, and that that is what made him so angry. And that's what will precipitate, of course, the army that Pharaoh is going to send out. So you have to ask the question, all right, it, it kind of could go both ways, but is Pharaoh going to send an army after them if they haven't even left the land yet? Perhaps, but it's a question that needs to be answered. There is a reference, however, in Judges chapter 11, verse 16, where it says this, When they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and then came to Kadesh. They wouldn't come to Kadesh until much later. But it says they went through the wilderness to the Red Sea. And you could say that the southern part of Egypt, which was less fertile, was more or less a wilderness, or the vast wilderness that separates the two branches of the, of the Red Sea. And then in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, twice they're going to say, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? It would be better for us to have died where? In Egypt. Why did you drag us out here? So I really don't see them in Egypt at this point. I think if you want to be... I want to answer the question, how can Pharaoh say they're wandering in his land? Really, the, the whole what is now called the Sinai Desert was under the protectorate of Egypt at this point. It's, there's something that runs through the middle of it called the Wadi El Arish that was the border of Egypt at this time. So even if they are in that wilderness, they're out, but they're technically still under Egypt's jurisdiction, which I think would, would, uh, which I think would answer that question. Which would mean they're either coming 
down the south or the central route through the wilderness, probably, I think, to the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the eastern gulf there. And you might say, well, how do they get there so fast? You have to remember, it says they went out with great haste. Remember that? They, they didn't let the bread rise. They packed it up, their bowls still with the mix in it in their back, and they got out of there. And it says that they marched in ranks. Moses was not just, you know, again, makes for great TV, but it's, this is not a mob of people. It's like forward march, and Moses is making them go. The pillar is leading them out into the wilderness. So it seems like they're going pretty quick, and that would certainly answer why they could get there so fast. I also think that this fits because the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, literally there in Hebrew, does not, is not exclusive to this passage. There are other places that talk about the Red Sea, of course, in the Old Testament. And if we look at where they seem to be locating this, I think it is a pretty good case to say that for the average Hebrew living in Israel, talking about the Red Sea was talking about what we now call the Gulf of Aqaba because it is associated very often with Edom, south of Israel. You remember Edom? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. They settled in that wasteland down in the south. They're very uh, closely identified with a city called Seir. There's another city called Taman that you might have seen. And they were to the south of Israel which is exactly what would be adjacent to the Gulf of Aqaba. 1 Kings 9.26, it says that King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. So Solomon built a ship on the shore of the Red Sea, which is in the land of Edom. So that tells you that there's the Red Sea, at least here, is referring to a place in Edom. Jeremiah 49, 21, when Jeremiah is declaring a, a judgment against the land of Edom, it says, At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. At the sound of their cry, it shall be heard at the Red Sea. Now, could that just be referring to really far away? Sure. But, you know, if it's like talking about America and saying, Their cry shall be heard from sea to shining sea. You know which seas we're talking about, right? Yeah, okay, the China Sea might work, but you're more obviously going to refer to Atlantic and Pacific because that's, that's our country. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, here's an interesting one. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. That is very interesting. You have Seir, which is the country of Edom, in parallel with Mount Sinai. Now, if Mount Sinai is all the way on the other side in what is today called the Sinai Desert, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they would be in parallel with one another. But if we know that the Mount Sinai is more or less directly to the south, of Mount Seir in a straight line going up towards Jerusalem, that poetry makes an awful lot of sense. And also we have in Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, it tells us that it is 11 days journey from Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So in Deuteronomy 1 verse 2, they're giving you directions from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, and the midpoint they give you is Mount Seir, which is in Edom, which is to the south of Israel. So I, I am inclined to, to pick that point of view, that Israel fled from Egypt. They went across what is now called the Sinai Wilderness. It wasn't called that then. We call it that now because the traditional place for Mount Sinai is to the south there. And so that's where that name came from. Deep into that wilderness, they encamp alongside the Gulf of Aqaba, the Yom Suf, which would place Mount Sinai and their wilderness in the Arabian Peninsula, not the Sinai Peninsula. Is there anything biblically that says you can't say that? I don't think so. But the other option, which 
really, I don't really care to fight with you about this. <laughs> the other option is that they cross the sea some point, the north of the Gulf of Suez, with the wilderness itself being that Sinai Desert and the Mount Sinai being in the traditional place, which would be at the southern tip right as it gets into the Red Sea prop proper there. You can't really appeal to tradition because there's Christian tradition, there's Jewish tradition, there's Arabian and Islamic tradition, and they've all got good things to say. <laughs> but none of it really dismantles what the Bible is teaching. I think the biggest insight that I gained from this is that you need to know that the Red Sea encompasses all of that water. You can't just say that's it and it had to be here. It's referring to all of this. There's one guy who said that there is a synonym in Hebrew, or not a synonym, there, there's a homonym, a word that sounds the same, which is suf, right? This is the yam suf. Suf means read, but suf as a verb can mean to go far beyond. So he ar argues that you should translate this not as the sea of reeds, but the sea at the end, as in the sea at the end of the world. But that it's never really used that way in scripture, and he's the only guy that thinks it. So I'm inclined to think maybe he's right, but probably not, just saying that. But if that's our Red Sea, and we know that they're crossing the wilderness to get to the sea, or they're going through the wilderness at any rate, then that's probably where I think it is. I will say this too, though. I, I don't believe it is a lapse of faith to believe that they did not cross in, in the deep, traditional, deep ocean-ish type water, right? If you believe that they crossed in the, in the marshy sea of reeds up in the north, that, that is no less a miracle than the big water being parted, right? As long as you believe that it was a miracle. There are some people that say, well, listen, the winds blow through there all the time, and sometimes it's dry, and sometimes it comes, and they happen to get there at just the right time. All right, listen, if you're going to go about trying your best not to believe in miracles, the Bible is going to be a really difficult read for you. I'm just trying to say, this was a miracle. We're going to read through this whole story. You have to believe it was all made up if you're going to say that. But, and I'm not trying to be funny as I say this, we're all familiar with the depictions of the Red Sea parting and then crossing and crashing over everybody, right? Um, the scene from the Lord of the Rings where the river overflows and washes away the, the ring race in the first one. If you've not seen this, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but just work with me here. It, w it may have been something a little bit more like that. Is that any less a miracle than the other thing? No, but we just have to visualize it a little differently. So you're not somehow a bad Christian if you believe that, but I do think you are reading a little too much into the word reeds because the Bible uses it elsewhere when it very obviously can't mean reeds. It just means that big body of water down there. All of this is interesting, at least it is to me. It's not definitive. You ask me again tomorrow, I might think that the other guy has a better opinion. And it's certainly not essential. As I said, I, I really don't care to fight about this with you. There are some people that say, but we could find where Mount Sinai is. It's like, and then what? It'd be great. It'd be really cool, but it's not a magic mountain, right? The only magic mountain is in Six Flags out in California. That's magic mountain. If we found it, it'd be cool. It'd be great. And there's some people that believe they have, and there's people that fight about that, right? But all, all that really needs, we need to know is that the children of Israel have fled from Egypt. They're going to cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh is going to be destroyed. It's going to be a mighty miracle, and then they will be at Mount Sinai before too long. So it's, it's not necessary to understand this passage, but as good Bible students, it's a lot of fun to track down. So go home and on your own, do a word study, search up all the places where it says Red Sea, search up all the places where it says Mount Sinai, do some cross-referencing and, and, and see what you think. But for now, we're just going to move on and we're going to get into chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And if we knew where those two places were, it's going to really settle this argument for us. It's interesting, though, because Pihahiroth is an Egyptian word. Sounds like an Egyptian name, anything that begins with P-I or P like that. But Baal Zephon is a Canaanite word because Baal, as you know, is one of the gods they worshipped there. So it really doesn't help us. <laughs> But they knew where it was, and we know that they're by the sea. Pharaoh changes his mind again. I've made it through the whole story without telling this, but I've got to share this story. My little sister was a little girl, like two or three, and they, my mom was reading her the story of Pharaoh and how Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. And she said, why did Pharaoh let the people go? And she goes, well, because the Lord was delivering them, and they had been slaves, and they'd been... You know, he was, he was doing a great miracle. My little sister, she goes, if I was Pharaoh, I wouldn't let him go. <laughs> My mom goes, why? She goes, because who's going to do all the work? <laughs> very practical little girl, my sister. Maybe not very compassionate at that point yet. But in a sense, that's exactly what Pharaoh is saying here. Well, they're gone, but now what are we going to do? I'm not going to do this work. Y'all ain't going to do this work. And it could be that Pharaoh was still under the illusion that they were going three days into the wilderness. There are some folks that think this. Remember Moses was asking, let us go three days to worship. And when it became clear that they were hightailing it out of there, that Pharaoh goes, no, we're bringing y'all back. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, because Pharaoh seemed to say at the end of the 10th plague, would you just get out of here and never come back? But his reaction is one of regret. It's probably one of grief. Everybody's lost their firstborn children. I'm sure there's a lot of emotion going on here. And he rallies the troops. The Egyptian chariot was a fearsome thing at this time. You know, we look at them now and they're a little silly to our eyes. But you've got to imagine being on foot, watching a, a, a double-horsed chariot chasing you down while there's a guy driving it and there's a guy throwing spears at you. And now there's 600 of them chasing you down. It would have the same effect in a tank that a tank has these days. And he says they had officers. I found this interesting. The word for officer there is with thirds over them, like T-H-I-R-D, thirds over them, meaning that there were two-man chariots and three-man chariots as well. And the three men would have been bigger, would have probably been stronger, and that's where the officers would have ridden. And as they get ready to go, that's when it says, once more, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Once again, Pharaoh made his choice, and God locked it in. Because the children of Israel, it says, were going out defiantly. Literally, in the Hebrew, going out with a high hand. It's like swaggering out of the land of Egypt. They're in battle formation. They're moving quickly. They're marching out. But, of course, the chariots are faster. And they overtake them, it says, encamped at the sea. Some people just don't know when to quit. And you know what? The evil in the world is just as senseless and just as relentless as Pharaoh is here. Haven't you found that to be true? If you desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
If you want to be saved, if you want to overcome your iniquities, you need to be aware. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is an active, personal, persistent opposition to you. There is the devil and his armies and people that are, don't know any better and all the trouble of the world arrayed to stop you from walking out of slavery to sin. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Just in case you're thinking, no, no, I'm New Testament. Satan can't harm me anymore. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you might say, why would Satan come after us? Doesn't he know that the Holy Spirit fills us and the name of Jesus is more powerful and that he's lost? Oh, he knows it, but he's like Pharaoh. It doesn't matter. He's blinded by rage. He's blinded by hate, and he's coming for you. The attitude of the devil. What's the attitude of the devil? He hates you. He hates life. He hates the universe. He doesn't see it as worth continuing anymore. You see this attitude in some people. I, I think you see this in, in some, I'm not, don't get political on me here, but I think in some very extreme climate activists. Humanity is a problem. We're what's wrong with the world, and we ought to die. They're called extinctionists. That's, that's kind of the attitude of Satan, isn't it? There is nothing good, there is nothing worth redeeming about people. And God, in his idiocy, has come to redeem these irredeemable people. I won't have it. I will not allow this. I know better. I'm smarter. I'm more glorious. I should be on that throne. And Lord, I'm going to show you how worthless these people are by provoking them to do the worst possible thing. Don't think of Satan as sitting there cackling like some evil villain from the 20s where he's got a big mustache or anything. He hates you. He hates everything. He doesn't look at you sinning and, and mock and laugh and say, ha ha, finally, I, I got him. That He despises you. He looks down on you. I imagine Satan is the kind of person that tempts you to sin and then despises you for giving in to his temptation because you're everything that he hates. There's no grace, there's no love, there's no joy, and he will do everything to stop you. Now, we don't have chariots chasing us down in most cases. So what does this look like? I'll give you four quick reasons, four quick examples. Number one, Pharaoh chasing you down can be temptations to draw you back in. You've left that sin behind. Not doing that anymore. We're moving on. It's a brand new day. And then here comes the temptation. Boom. Harder and stronger than ever before. And saying no, even though you've said no a thousand times, this time saying no just seems like the worst, hardest thing you've ever had to do in your life. I'm never, ever going to cheat on my wife again. That's done. It's over. We're moving on. And then somebody saunters by and gives you a look. And all of a sudden, your heart is pounding. And you know you should say no, and you want to say no. But you're thinking to yourself, how can I pass up something like that? I'm not going to steal from my boss anymore. And then he leaves the cash register open. It's like it's, like it's just right in your face. Like, well, this is just kind of silly. If he really wanted me to do the right thing, he would have closed it. So really, this is on him. I had employees at my old job that were like that. If, if I can get away with it, then it's your fault for letting me get away with it. That's temptation. Circumstances will come in to discourage you. This house is going to serve the Lord. We're going to do what's right, and we're never going to falter again. And then both cars blow up. You lose your job. We're going to tithe now. We've, we've been neglecting tithing. We know that we're supposed to do it. So, Lord, we're going to start tithing today. You drop that first check in the box. You go home, and now you're getting your taxes audited. 
and now your boss is cutting your hours. And now it turns out you're going to be responsible for that benefit that your job used to cover. Circumstances come in. Number three, disapproval from other people. Sometimes you say, I'm going to start serving Jesus, and the people around you don't care for it. Your parents will tell you, I don't need all that religion in this house. I had kids in my youth group that would come to church, get saved, get excited about the Lord, and their parents would say, you're staying home from church for a few weeks because you're getting way too religious. I'm dead serious that that happened, and it happens more than you think. Disapproval. You don't go out and get drunk every night anymore, so now your buddies don't want to hang out with you. Or maybe it's not that they don't want to hang out with you. They're insisting that you come back and do the same things you used to. Oh, you think you're better than us now? Oh, we always knew you thought you were high and mighty and better than everybody else, and you're just like all those other hypocrites, and we know what you're really like. Or it can be just doubts and fears. There's no way I can sustain this for the rest of my life. You ever had that thought? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop lying. Okay, I did good. It was a tough two days. And then Satan comes in and says, yeah, great, two days. Now you've got a million more. Now just keep at it. Let's see how you do. That's Pharaoh chasing you down on your way out of slavery. 1 Peter 5, verse 9 which is, comes right after 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Satan is a roaring lion. What are you supposed to do? Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I love that. Resist him, firm in your faith. You're not alone. You are not somehow singled out in your struggle. And sometimes it's good to hear that. You think, I'm facing this, and no one else in the entire world has any idea what I'm dealing with. This is why you've got to be in church. And I realize you're here, so I'm not going to get on you, right? But you've got to be in church. You've got to make friends. You've got to be around people. You've got to get to know somebody enough so you can have that kind of deep conversation with them. Because he's after you. He's after all of us. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to his people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Across the horizon come the chariots of Pharaoh. Their worst nightmare just came true. And the people begin to panic. They accuse Moses for leading them astray. I tell you, you want to be a leader, you get all the credit and all the blame. And usually you get more blame than credit in my experience. Remember back in verse 2, the Lord said, turn around. They were going on a direct route. And the Lord said, I want you to go this way instead and camp by the sea. I want you to put us in a place where we can't get out easily. We were going to the promised land, and now the, the ocean's right there. The sea's right there. Well, this is nice. But we got the wilderness back there, and now we have the sea. Oh, God must have a plan. But here comes Pharaoh. Despite the fact, by the way, that the pillar of cloud and fire had been the thing leading them. Very often, we, we love it where God, when God's leading us, but the second trouble comes, we forget the fact that it was God that brought us there. 
And again, look how it says they're in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt, which nudges us, I would say, towards the Gulf of Aqaba in the location of the sea. But you can see their fear. And this fear reminds me of, of like an abused child or abused spouse. You ever know that girl that had that guy that was so bad for her and was always hitting her and he was always yelling at her and abusing her and everybody else knew she was great, but this guy treated her like garbage and she would break up with him, but she kept going back and you couldn't figure out why? Like, why do you keep going back to that guy? This is the same attitude. Why don't you just let me be a slave, Moses? Let me be a slave in Egypt. I'd rather do that. And then I finally let you take me out and now we're in the wilderness and here they come. This is your fault. They would rather go back to the familiar pain of their slavery than the unknown burden of freedom. And many Christians feel exactly the same way when the road of faith gets hard. And you can apply this however you like. You can apply this to your whole salvation. You're, you're talking about being saved and, and being baptized and following the Lord. You can apply this to overcoming even petty little sins or certain circumstances you're going through. The road gets hard. And you need to know, the life of sin apart from Christ is slavery. Everybody talking about, I'm free, I do whatever I want. That's not freedom. That is not freedom. You know who does whatever they want? Little children. And are they free? This is going to sound silly because of how, how ridiculous the analogy is, but you know, little children don't accomplish anything. I've got $5 from Grandma. What do you want? Bubble gum! They're doing exactly what they want. They don't know how to say no to themselves. So you've got to teach them, right? You've got to teach them, no, you can't have. No, you can't do. No, you can't say. No, you can't go. And sometimes as a parent, you feel awful about that. You never let me do anything. It's like, well, if I did, you wouldn't be very pleased with me when you're 40. You'd be sitting on a couch talking to somebody about how what a terrible father I was. You know who else does whatever they want? Addicts. When they want it, they get it. When they want that drink, they're getting that drink. When they want that hit, they're taking that hit. And you've known some of these people. They're the most impulsive people you've ever met. When they're done with the conversation, they'll just get up and walk away. But you see what happens to people like that. Their whole life spirals out of control, and you see that they're not free. They're bound in slavery. And what you've got to recognize is that it is not just those extreme examples, but it is any kind of life apart from Christ is slavery. I do whatever I want. Then you are bound by your impulses. You're bound by your own bad habits, your own bad ideas. I don't care what they're posting on Instagram. All that's fake anyway. Well, they get to do whatever they want. They, they shaped the, how many a thousand selfies did they take before they posted that one? How many? Oh, yeah, they look great in that picture, but how, how long in the car ride were they yelling and screaming at each other? It's all fake. But you know what slavery is? You know what life in sin is? It's comfortable because there's no responsibility on you. You get to do whatever you want. It's comfortable. You know what it's like. It might be miserable, but you know what you're going to get. There is a weight upon the Christian. There's a burden. It's a burden to live in freedom and not to submit to slavery. And when you do that, that takes away so many excuses you can have about your life. It, it places expectation upon you. It's the ultimate act of growing up. When you grow up and you become a man, your excuses that you used when you were 12 don't fly anymore. They don't. And people start expecting things of you. And it always made me crazy, even when I was, was younger, when people would say, everybody expects me to grow. I was like, yeah, that's, part of, that's what being a man is. You want to spend the rest of your life doing nothing and becoming nothing? 
It's so much more so as a Christian. You have the expectation to live righteously. Oh, so I can't do whatever I want? No, because whatever you want was killing you. But that's what happens when you see them coming. You see Pharaoh galloping in, and fear comes in. That girlfriend who you finally got away from, never going back there again. You have a really bad day at work, and she calls you. You know it's toxic. You know it's bad. You know it's not going to work. But what is it? It's familiar. You know what you're going to get. You'll be together. You'll be passionate. You'll be fun. You'll fight. You'll break up. And I'll start all over again. It'll feel very exciting and feel like you've got a lot of dramatic things happening in your life. But you've got to know that that's, that's the comfort of slavery. When you say, I'm not going to be doing crooked things at work. I'm not going to fix the books. I'm not going to pump up the prices. I'm not going to change. No, I'm not going to do that. Your boss comes in and threatens you. You're going to do it this way, or you're going to find somebody else to work for. And I know everybody in this business around here, so I'm going to tell them what you did. In fact, I'm going to lie about you. And who are they going to believe? You or me? I've known these guys for 30 years, and now they're hanging your livelihood over your head. And they start throwing your kids in your face. There's fear. I swore I was never going to go back to that. But you know what? I can, I can go right back. I can all be over. No, it won't. You'll be slave to that man. Life gets hard. You gave up the drugs. And now you're dealing with people, and you have to deal with them sober. And it's hard. And you think, you know what? Just once, just one more, one more hit to get me through the day. Your marriage is on the rocks, and you want to leave. You think, you know what? I could just leave. I could just leave right now. They'd never know where I went. And then I'd be free. I do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way. You spend the rest of your life broken and also knowing that you broke a whole lot of people behind you in your wake. The easy road calls us, but it will enslave you. When you have the thought that says, there's no way I can maintain this for the rest of my life, I'm out of here. That's the desire to go back to Egypt. And we laughed. We read it and we laughed. You want to go back to slavery? They're gonna, it's not the last time they're going to say that. You already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Abandoning Christ and his righteousness will get you nowhere. Well, I just, my life is so hard. I'm walking away from Jesus. May I ask you, to what? Oh, you had no problems before you were saved, right? There, there was nobody that, that got on your nerves before you became a Christian. Your bank account was just overflowing. You didn't know what to do with all that money when you, before you got saved, right? I don't understand it. But we say that because Satan tricks you into thinking the thing that will fix your life is walking away from Jesus. But it, it, it doesn't even relate to the situation. Now you've got to walk through it with no one to help you. That's why Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where would we go? You're going to leave me? And go where? Go, go find somebody else who didn't rise from the dead? Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I wonder if Paul had this passage in his mind when he wrote that. You've got to see that God has brought you to this place of crisis on purpose. Do you know that God does that? God backs you into a corner on purpose. He puts you in a rough spot on purpose. He takes everything away from you on purpose so he can demonstrate his power over your life so that you can go through this one rough spot so that all the rough spots after this will be easy cruising because you know the Lord is with you. You've got to consider that possibility. Oh, the coronavirus. You don't think God's not sovereign over that? 
And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know why. I'm just going to say, the Lord brought us here. Why would the Lord allow them to be in power or that guy to be president or that gal to be senator? The Bible says the Lord is the one that raises up and puts down rulers. Well, I just wish I knew why. Yeah, me too sometimes. But you got to think, well, why did God bring us here? It's a whole different perspective on life, isn't it? What do we do? Moses told us three things. Number one, fear not. Listen, church, can I tell you this? Sometimes you got to tell your feelings to take a hike. You can't minimize my truth. No, I'm trying to tell you to live out what is true, not just what is true to you. I'm afraid. Okay, I'm not saying it's wrong to be afraid. I'm saying you got to be afraid and then be brave. I tell my kids out when they're little, it's okay to be scared as long as you're brave. Sometimes you got to tell your feelings to take a hike. Number two, stand firm. Do not, men, be spooked into action. You're afraid, so i got to do something. Sometimes doing something is the worst thing you can do. Car's not running right. i got to go hammer on it for a little bit. That might not be what it needs. Unnecessary surgery can be the worst thing in a person's life sometimes. Action is not always the right thing to do. Number three, see, and I can't say it like Charlton Heston said it, but stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still. We don't like that. You told me to stand still? They're coming with swords and spears and stuff. Stand still. And in fact, he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I like the traditional translation, you shall hold your peace. But I like how they give it a little more literal. What does that mean? It means be quiet and watch. Just watch this, God says. You've got to memorize that verse, verse 14, and internalize it. The battle is the Lord's, not yours. When the Egyptians are galloping down on you and there's nowhere to go, you've got to force yourself to trust that God is watching out for you. I don't feel full of faith. Well, faith is not just a feeling. It also can be an act of your will. I'm going to stand here and trust that God is going to come. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. But look, the Lord says, but do you see me? Acknowledge your feelings, but don't trust them because they can lead you astray. Determine, I'm going to walk by faith. I don't care how rough it gets. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God tells Moses, stop whining and go forward. This is another one of those instances in the Bible where the Lord says, you don't need to ask me. I've already told you. Keep going. And Moses goes, keep going where? There's a sea right there. I go farther any, any further, I'm going to get my, my sandals wet. The Lord goes, then hold out your staff and divide the waters. May I just say, and this might be something to talk about a little bit later, if you are not able to obey verse 13 and 14, which is to be still and wait upon the Lord, you might not be able to hear the Lord tell you to go forward. 
If you spend all your time whining and, and freaking out and all of your prayers consist of you worrying to the Lord, you never stand still and just listen. You might not hear the instruction that he's trying to give you. But he tells him, raise the staff and divide the sea, promising I'm going to destroy the coming army. And this has got to be one of the coolest sights in the Bible. The pillar of cloud and fire moved from before the people and went behind the people. The prince of Egypt got this absolutely right. They, they did it the best. The big pillar of fire standing in the way. Don't touch my people. The Shekinah glory of the Lord coming around. And it was a pillar of cloud, remember? Big, dark pillar of cloud. But as the night fell, it illuminated the night. And the, the older translations in the NIV, and, and it can read this way, and I kind of like it, is that it had darkness for the sight of the Egyptians, but light for the sight of the Israelites. It could be how it reads. It's not certain. But the whole point is that Pharaoh, here comes his armies, and then here comes this giant flaming tornado that stands in their way. You're not going forward. Why can we have faith in impossible circumstances? Because we do not fight alone. Sometimes we put more faith in Satan and his assaults than in the Lord and his ability to deliver. I have found that worrisome Christians tend to have a much more robust theology of Satan and his temptation than they do of the Lord and his ability to save them. There's a devil harassing me. Maybe. Hey, listen, maybe. But you do know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We don't need to have some sort of magic ceremony to, to get rid of that. You call upon the Lord to fight for you. I, I, I know, but I think this is a very serious thing. You're not seeing as we said, you don't fight alone. This business of fighting for us is not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament promise too. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have the Son of God on your side, and the Holy Spirit fills you up. That's better than a pillar. You've got the Lord on your side. He's standing in heaven in the gap for you. Just as the pillar of fire and cloud stood between the children of Israel and the armies of Pharaoh, the Lord Jesus Christ stands between the devil and you. My blood has covered them. You can't cross that line. The trouble is, when Pharaoh is closing in, we ignore the flaming tornado and we look up at the horses. We're so clever. We say, it's time to act. It's better to give in. It's better just to let the slavery go. When you've not even given God a chance to do his work. We say God is God of the impossible. Don't we? Don't we know that to be true? Christian, you are not allowed to despair. You, you do not have permission to despair. You do not have permission to say it's too far gone. There's no. If I hear one more person tell me the nation is so far gone, the only thing that can happen is the rapture. I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get upset by this. We don't have despair in the church. What about Daniel in the lion's den? He, the law was passed. You don't think they didn't pray for that law not to pass? It was passed. Well, let's pray that God doesn't catch us. He was caught. Well, let's pray that God doesn't have us thrown in. He was thrown in. Well, let's pray that they'd get us out. They didn't get him out. They shut him in, locked the gate, and said, well, get him out in the morning when the lions have torn him to pieces. Impossible. But not for the Lord. The Lord shut the lion's mouths. He passed through the night in the lion's den. 
about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But you know, the king is going to be making a giant statue for us all to bow down to. Let's pray that God changes his mind. He didn't. Let's pray that we're not invited to this event. They were invited. Let's not bow down and pray that he doesn't see us. They were noticed. Let's pray he doesn't make a big deal out of it. He made a big deal out of it. And so what do they say? We're not doing this. Let's pray that God doesn't have us thrown into the fire. They were thrown into the fire. It was over. But the Lord was there. Impossible was overcome. What about Paul and Silas? They were thrown in prison. And Paul had a legal way out of that prison. You know what Paul could have done? He could have spent all that night griping and whining. Oh, you just wait and see. First thing in the morning, I'm going to call that magistrate over here. They're going to see my citizenship, and they're going to have to refund me for all this. This is not right. I don't belong in here with all these prisoners. Is that what Paul did? They began to sing and praise and worship the Lord. And God rocked that jail and opened up not just their chains, but everybody else's. And there was a revival in that prison. Impossible. Overcome by the Lord. What about Jehoshaphat and his army? There was an army marching in. And they said, we've got to go to war. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to win this one for you. Jehoshaphat, all right then, worship leaders up front. They're going out into battle, and they put the priests blowing the trumpets in the front of the army because he had that much faith. He says, hey, it's impossible for us to win this battle anyway. Might as well trust the Lord. And they get there, and the battle had already been won, and they just got to scoop up a bunch of free stuff. Impossible. But they gave God a chance. How about Jesus Christ? Arrested beaten, convicted, flogged, crucified, laid in a tomb for three days. Impossible. But on that third day, what happened? The angel rolled away that stone and Jesus came out of there. You're not allowed to despair, Christian. There is no impossible situation for you. I don't want to hear it anymore. The Lord doesn't want to hear it anymore. You've got to let God give him a chance to do what he does. If you spend your whole life avoiding impossible situations like the plague and compromising your salvation and God's righteousness to stay out of it, you're never going to see the Lord do amazing things. Well, you don't understand what I'm going through. You know what I do know is that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Consider the fact, Christian, this is common. You're not doing something that God has never seen before. You're not doing something that God is, oh boy, I don't know what I'm going to do with this one. God is all-powerful. And you've got to consider the fact that God led you to this place on purpose and has a plan to show his might in your life. You're not allowed to despair. Verse 21 Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord God saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now here comes the good part. The Lord sends a wind to part the sea. This is something you don't see in most of the versions. That there was a strong wind that parted the sea. Moses is holding up that staff, and here comes the wind beginning to blow. And it divides the waters so that the people can pass by on dry ground between two walls of water. Some people have even said they thought that the wind would have frozen the water. I do not see that in Scripture, but it makes for an interesting image, doesn't it? And it says the Egyptians pursued. You say, wait a minute, how is this? That the pillar of cloud and fire was in front of them. How did they get through? Well, you see that the Lord is in the cloud looking down on them. So imagine the thing lifting up from the earth. And off they go. But then it says he looked down on them from the cloud and panicked them. So imagine they're running through the Red Sea, parted on both sides. And now that pillar of cloud and fire, it's nighttime, so it's fire. Water on this side, and now there's a pillar of fire covering them from overhead. And it sends them into a panic. Because it's water, water, earth, and fire. They're trapped. And they begin to panic. Their wheels start to fall off. And they say, we've got to get out of here. And Moses is on the other side when the last person had crossed, extended his hand, and the sea returned, flooding and drowning the Egyptians. And you have this image of the horses and the men washing up on the seashore, which I think is another image of the justice of God for the firstborn who had been thrown into the Nile River and drowned at the beginning of this book. Justice and liberation from the hand of God. And we finally have a statement of faith from the people that they feared the Lord and trusted Moses. They will, unfortunately, have to learn this lesson quite a few times, like most of us. Isaiah 43, verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Is our God not mighty to save? Is that not the greatest story of all time, barring the resurrection? That the Lord opened up the waters, lured the Egyptians in, scared them with fire, and then drowned them in the sea. Putting a story in the minds of these people that they would never forget that our God is able to fight for us. Let me ask you, has God not been mighty to save you up till now? Haven't you seen God deliver you in this way over and over again? So many times we miss it. The Lord delivers us and we're happy in that moment and we go, oh, I guess it wasn't such a big deal after all. When it's exactly what the Lord did for you. Every time the church has thought it was all over, God has brought deliverance. The church endured the persecutions of Rome. You don't think there were people that were afraid that they would never survive this Roman Empire? Maybe they ended up running the Roman Empire. Did the Reformation not break through a dead medieval church that had no life left in it? Didn't a revival sweep through our country when our culture was written off in the 60s and 70s? This hippie movement is the end. The Lord's got to come back. There's nothing else to be done. And God goes, I'm not done yet. Didn't the Lord provide for you when you didn't have the money? Didn't he give you that bill last minute? No, he did for me. 
Didn't you grieve and you thought you would never get over it and yet you're standing right here? You've been able to move on? Haven't you overcome sins in your life? Why do we only obsess over the ones we're struggling with now and never look back on the ones that we've already overcome? So why do we panic now when you see Egypt on the horizon? It is only when the situation is impossible that a miracle becomes necessary. So why be afraid? I love this story in, in New York City, in Brooklyn. Pastor Jim Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle was pastoring this church. There was nobody coming. There was no money. They all hated him. It wasn't going well. He had a guest speaker come in, and he was kind of apologizing for the church when they went to lunch and kind of laying out the whole situation to him. And he said the guy just began to weep and praise the Lord in the restaurant. And he goes, why are you happy about this? He said, because this situation is so hopeless. The only possibility is for God to do a miracle. And that's exactly what happened. Too late is never too late. God is able to raise the dead, so why are you giving him timelines? Don't be afraid to trust him. We're so clever in our analysis, but you've got to look at things from a heavenly perspective. If you're looking at all this, but you're not looking up there, you don't have all the information, and you cannot create an accurate assessment. Just as God led Israel through the sea, just as he saved your soul through baptism, so will he now save you as you face trials and temptations and tribulations day by day, big and small. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Are you able to do that when the panic starts to rise? Well, I'm just a worrier. No, no, no. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Well, I, I can't do nothing. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I don't think it's right for us just to wait and expect God to do what he's going to do. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God helps those who help themselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You don't think that our culture, which is so obsessed with what we can do and what we can accomplish, doesn't need a good lesson and you are not good enough? Isn't that what our church, not this church, but all our churches need to learn? That God is a miracle-working God and doesn't need your help? Fear the Lord. Trust His promises because we walk by faith and not by sight. And if you're hemmed in by the Egyptian army on one side and the waters of the sea on the other, Hebrews 12, 12 tells us to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees because you've got a Lord who fights for you. Number one, get back to work and do what you know is right. Do not walk out to the devil with a white flag saying, all right, fine, take me back, I'll do what you want. And number two, train yourself to pray as you ought. I'm waiting on the Lord. Are you praying? Well, I did pray. Are you praying? Are you fasting? Are you committing yourself to prayer? Are you praying more than you've been on Facebook this week? You ain't praying? Come on. Pray. Seek the Lord. Every day you've got to go through this. You've got to choose to believe that God is with you. Choose to believe that your old slave masters have no hold on you anymore. Become a slave of Christ and let him fight your battles for you. And trust that he will throw the plans of the enemy into confusion if you will hold on in faith.